Podcasting from Hartford, you're listening to the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast, your place for all things Connecticut sports. And here is your host, Jared Cutler. Hey, joining me today, we've got Dana O'Neill. She's the author of The Big East, Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in College Basketball History. Dana, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So Dana, I've got to start with the obvious question here that I love to ask authors what was the your thinking behind coming up with a book about the history of the Big East and diving into it? Because there are so many things you could go into when it comes to writing a book about college basketball. I'm curious what piqued your interest in, in going into the Big East here. Well, it's funny. I it's I love would love to take credit for being the one that had the foresight to see this, but what actually happened was I wrote a story for the Athletic during Rivalry Week a couple of years ago, kind of going behind the scenes with all the crazy Big East coaches meeting. And a book agent who's a Georgetown graduate reached out to me and said, gosh, this is such a great story. I've been thinking there's a story behind the Big East and that um, there should be a book done about it. And I honestly was like, wait, no one's done a book about the Big East? Like, <laughs> that seems impossible. Um, yeah. So when he said that, no, there wasn't, I was like, oh, my goodness, yeah, absolutely. Because I knew from having covered it and spoke, you know, talked talk to the coaches involved for all these years, just how colorful the, the stories were and the personalities. And I knew it. And, and in, in my opinion, as the title is the influence that the league had. So it seemed like an obvious decision um, once they pitched it to me, frankly. So being here in Connecticut, I've got to dive into some UConn things with you. But, but first I, I want to start when, when UConn wasn't in the big East and they were in the American personally, one of the things I missed, and I think most UConn fans really missed was the league tournament at, at Madison square garden. And I know in the book, you talk about how key Madison square garden, New York was to the big East success. And what surprised me was there was some apprehension to it, especially when it came to putting the, the title game in primetime on Saturday night. Can you give us a little bit of insight into that MSG decision and how key that was for the Big East and still is for them? Yeah, sure. I mean, so the Garden, you know, in retrospect, right, it makes 100% sense. That what, where else would you want to be? But there was just, you know, a sort of a timing thing at the beginning. The league was brand new, kind of getting its foothold. Um, you know, at the time, you know, East, East, Coast football, East Coast basketball hadn't really had as much success in recent years because of the ACC taking its best player. So, you know, there was a reluctance to move to the garden and worry that they wouldn't fill it. But as soon as uh, Dave Gavitt heard that Patrick Ewing was coming to Georgetown, he knew that he had the kind of player that would just electrify the league and it made perfect sense. So off they go to the garden. And then of course, when the, when the league folded and reformed, if you will, they recognized the importance of keeping that because it's such a brand idea a brand relationship at this point like you think big east you think garden number one right and also it's new york i mean it's where people want to go and people want to go spend a week there to go to the games just because it's a destination um but yeah then when you know in between those two times mike trangisi became commissioner and he recognized moving the game off of selection sunday you know when everyone's sort of mostly worried about the bracket and moving it to Saturday night and putting it in primetime New York City was just like he thought an, a great plan. But people were nervous. They were just like, are people going to pay attention? We have got this great Sunday slot. And my gosh, I mean, having been to a number of those championship games, there's, there's just nothing like championship Saturday right. in New York for the Big East tournament. Exactly. I, I mean... It, it seems like the Big East and their leaders were so ahead of the curve on, on so many of the decisions the league made, which I, I just find really interesting and still think they're the head of the game in, in some ways today still. One thing that's just a constant theme throughout your book is how tough the Big East is and was at the time, still is, I think. 
But looking back at those days in the Big East, what do you think made the conference so tough? You know, I think number number a couple of things. Number one, I mean, they had they got I don't say lucky is the horrible word because it sounds like there was you know no skill, but <laughs> they came of age at a time when some of the greatest players in college basketball were coming of age: Chris Mullen, Patrick Ewing, Pearl Washington, and they all came to college with sort of that playground nastiness edge if you will that's what they were reared on that was their kind of their their footprint and how they played and they brought that personality to the league and you know it's funny like every league sort of develops their sort of i don't know their brand their personality what they're expected to play like and i'm not sure if it holds true across the board but big east basketball has never been known as quote pretty i mean it's just tough like you go in there they had six fouls for a reason for a while because everyone was beating the jesus out of each other (laughs) and early on they had fights you know literal fist you know fists and punches thrown so that was just sort of what the edge that they brought to it because i think they felt like First of all, they were fighting for identity, and they were playing sort of to their to their strengths because that's how they were grow- that's how they were raised. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that I think everyone loved about the league was just how, how tough it was, and it, well, it's changed a little bit. I, I still think there's some toughness there to the to the Big East. So now, looking at UConn, when UConn joins the league, what were the thoughts from some of the other teams within the conference of UConn being a part of the conference? Yeah, it's funny because you know. Um, Dave Gavitt, as you said earlier, like he saw things that a lot of people didn't see, um, starting with the idea of the league in general, but he insisted that UConn was the right team to add. And there was a lot of pushback. I mean, there was not a lot of people in agreement with him. You know, every other school had a similar identity in that they were city schools. They were private schools, um, with great history and tradition at the time. UConn did not have the tradition of success that it has now, it was a big state school kind of stuck in the middle of nowhere in stores. And there was a lot of pushback that they didn't think it was a good idea, but Gavitt insisted that he thought it was a sleeping giant. And I mean, lo and behold, he couldn't have been more right. Now UConn made the smartest decision of all, and that was hiring Jim Calhoun. You know, it's easy right. to say, it's easy to realize um, Dave Gavitt's vision when you hire the right coach. And they absolutely did. And it worked out as we all know, ridiculously well. One thing I, I really enjoyed about the book was the profiles and the way you dive into the coaches of the league. And I think every coach in the league ha- has just a huge personality and, and something mm-hmm. about them that, that really made them interesting to, to fans. When UConn comes in and, and Jim Calhoun joins that group of coaches, what were the thoughts of Calhoun, you know, maybe in the early days in the Big East before he started to show what he could do with UConn? Yeah, as, you know, we don't think of Jim Calhoun as sort of like being you know, young and edgy and trying to get his foot in the door because that's not who he is. Right. But at the time he was, he was up at Northeastern watching what was going on, the big East and chomping at the bit, like, darn, I really want to be part of that. When he goes to his first meeting, he's like, looks around the room. He's like, well, I got some work to do. You know, he told his wife at the time, you're not going to see me for a while. Cause he's going up against John Thompson and Luke Karnaseka and Roly Massimino. I mean, he knew what he was up against, but he had the perfect mentality for UConn basketball. He was a fighter and a scrapper. That's how he was raised as a person. And that's mm-hmm. how he coached. He sold being an underdog. He sold being part of the Big East. He recognized that, you know, we need to keep some of our talented Northeast kids, especially Connecticut, Connecticut kids home. And that's where he started. And 
built the brand. Like I, he told me a funny story, which I just never considered. Like at the beginning when he worked there and he would say, we're the Yukon Huskies. People thought like Yukon, Alaska, like why U-K-O-N? Because there was no recognition of Yukon basketball. And he made that into, I mean, it's, you know, they went from the team that nobody wanted to the team that had the most national championships in the league. I mean, that's, that's a pretty large climb. What? If you, you know, in the chapter you have on UConn, you talk about some key moments throughout Calhoun's tenure there and the rise of UConn in college basketball prominence. When would you say the moment, and, and what was that moment when UConn really announced itself to the country that they were going to be able to be a team to be reckoned with and, and really compete at the highest levels in college basketball? Well, I mean, I think there were, I think there were a lot of small moments that, that you know, that always kind of get you to the big moments. I mean, that's like, there's always that sort of that game that everyone talks about that gets you there. But I think, you know, getting Charles Smith, number one, was huge. You know, I think people don't necessarily understand that in, in, in terms of like the moment, but getting him to stay home and say, UConn's good enough. That, that was big for him, for, um, for, for Jim Calhoun. But, you know, I'd have to go through the the Rolodex of games, but I mean, I feel like, you know, when they first kind of, they first win that first Big East tournament, they're celebrating on the court like they've won the national championship (laughs) because in a way they kind of did. I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody wanted this team and here they are on top of, on top of, on top of the league when nobody saw it coming. You know, they, they were chomping at the bit for quite some time. And Calhoun kind of arrives in New York with people saying, you know, oh, he's a good coach, but he's never done it. He's never done this. He's never done that. And that's how coaches go, right? They're dogged by what they yeah. haven't accomplished. And he gets to New York and no one thinks he can get over the hump. And when they get over the hump and you're the best in that league, I think people are like, oh, okay. Okay. This, this, this is for real. <laughs> I know. You know, as you get towards the end of the book, you talk about as the league started to go different ways due, due to football there. Take us through a little bit the role that football played in the the league dissolving and not being what it used to be in the role that, that football did in breaking that apart. Yeah, I mean, it was it was always going to be a mess. And even Dave Gavitt saw that at the very beginning because, you know, Syracuse, Boston College, Pitt, and then UConn eventually play football and everybody else didn't. And so it was always going to be something that they had to deal with. And it was interesting in the 1980s, you know, Penn State came knocking and wanted to join and they took it to a vote three times and, the, and they voted it down three times. And you have to sit back and wonder, like, what might have been had Penn State been admitted in 1982, right? But so, you know, they tried to make it work by feeding the football beast and inviting teams into the league. And for a while, it was great. I mean, it was, you know, when it was with with West Virginia and with Louisville, even at, at you know, later, it, it got good. I mean, you can't say that it wasn't good, but it was such a big mess because there was always a separation in the room on needs and demands and you couldn't satisfy both easily. Like, you know, the football schools were making this money and didn't want to give it to the basketball schools. So it was always going to be a bone of contention. And then of course, once everything fell apart and teams just started jumping around, you know, Boston college goes first, you know, which it was bad, but they could handle that one. And, you know, and, when when Pitt and Syracuse, especially Syracuse, left, that was just like that was the nail in the coffin because Syracuse was such a part of the fabric of the league in terms of so many of the big moments, um, and you understood why they went. You got it from a business perspective, but 
it just it just ruined everything, frankly. And and I think Jim Beheim himself would be the first to say that. Like it was just that was the end. Um, and they tried. They you can't argue that they didn't try to save it, but there was just no saving it after a while. You know, we we look at the influence of of money in college sports in general over the past several years here, <laughs> and you look at that that last deal that was posed to the Big East schools, and they were ready to take with with the one point four billion and, yep. and eleven million per school. Why wasn't that enough for them? <laughs> you know, I think it's like anything else. You look around and you think we can get more, we can get more. And, you know, people were saying under the, you know, behind closed doors, a couple of schools were steering them away because they, I think they were also looking to get out anyway. So there might have been some back dealing going on with all of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it's easy in hindsight to say, what were you thinking? But at the time, I think they actually thought that they could walk away and get more. And, and they were they couldn't have been more wrong. Um, right. You know, it's it's just, and and now you're right. Now it's just I don't even know where it's going to end at this point. I'm not sure if it even we, we we've we've jumped the shark times twenty five at this point. And but I give the Big East credit because when they reformed, I'll be honest, I was skeptical about whether they could make it, and they have made it. And now they've gone be, from the the league most in danger of being raided to the one that no one's going to touch. I mean, they've right. got nothing that anybody wants. They are as secure as a league is in the country right now, which is a wonderful place to sit. What were your thoughts when when UConn made that decision to to go back to the Big East and, and rejoin the the home that was theirs for so long? It, it it made such sense. You know, look, I understand again why UConn tried to go all in on football when you see the financial possibilities of it, but to me, it was always a decision that ruined the entire identity. UConn is a basketball school, men's and women's, and that's who mm-hmm. they were, and that's what they've always been perceived at. And I think they chased the football possibility, and it ended up ruining what they were. I mean, you know, they go into the American, and I get it, but from a basketball perspective, you know, you couldn't recruit, you couldn't get fans. They didn't want to see you playing Tulsa or mm-hmm. nothing against Tulsa, but that wasn't what – UConn basketball was about. So when they decided to come back and the league decided that it made sense, it was such a perfect decision. And I think, look, we're already seeing the caliber of players that Danny Hurley is getting and what he's able to do because of the Big East brand. He's recruiting now to a league that makes sense for his program. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. I've I've got some lightning round questions that I want to throw at you. Given some of the research you did for the book, I think you're going to have some fun answers for this one. And and I'll start with this one. You talk about some of the arenas throughout the Big East and and how tough they were to play in. Where would you say the toughest place to play in the Big East was? I mean, I think other people would argue, you know, back in the day, if if you're asking historically, it was Manly Field House where Syracuse (laughs) would never lose. Um, me personally, the one I always thought just by visiting was Providence. I thought Providence was hmm. like a highly nasty arena to play in. Um, and just really, really, I don't know, the, the crowd was on top of you and always had an edge. But I think back in the day, certainly Manly, you know, Carrier Dome has its own sort of uh, intimidation factor just because of the size of it. But can it can be both noisy and crazy and cavernous both um, mm-hmm. at the same time. So it kind of cuts both ways. We talked a little bit about the, the coaches and their personalities here. Who's the most demanding coach, do you think, to play for in the conference? Wow, that's a, that's a hard question. I mean, probably, 
probably John Thompson. I mean, I think just because his expectations went, you know, on the court, obviously, about how, you know, you were to play. But it went well beyond that. I mean, I thought it was really interesting. You know, Michael Graham was such an important part of his team in 1984. And then Michael Graham didn't do things right academically. And he dismissed him from the team. I mean, there was no gray error with John. Like, you're in or you're out. So mm-hmm. I would say it was probably John. While we're on the, the coaches here, which coach do you think gave refs the toughest time? Because there's certainly a lot of that. <laughs> I mean, it's all different, right? It's funny. Like, if you talk to the refs, like, people, I thought it was funny that, you know, they would say, like, Lou Carnesecca would give it to, like, because I think people thought Louie was real sweet and kind, but they said they, <laughs> he gave it to him with words that they hadn't known that he had, had been invented yet. Um, Roly was, Roly Massimino was just relentless. I mean, he, on the sidelines, in between, you know, halves, like, he, he probably was, I would say among the top because he was just from the top, the time the ball tipped through halftime at the end of the game, he did not give them a break. All right. Oh, always fun watching those guys out there going to come up against the officials in terms of looking at, you know, the biggies from a historical perspective, if you had to pick one team that was most important to the league's success, who, who would you give that award to? I think it has to go to Georgetown um, because when the league was forming in 1979, you know, they're taking this risk to put everything together. And then, you know, John Thompson gets Patrick Ewing to come and play and they win a national championship in 1984 and they become this dominant program with all of these sort of, you know, they're a villain and people love them or they hate them. They ha- they give this urban street cred to the, to the program. I think they brought instant credibility to the league Um that that the league needed. I mean, everyone thought this was a good idea once it formed, but by going out there, getting Patrick Ewing, winning a national championship, playing in the final four the year before, playing in the final four the year after, they just brought a national prominence to the Big East that it might not have had as quickly. It would have always had mm-hmm. it, but not as quickly as if were, were it not for George Chan at that time. So Fox Sports during the pre and post and, and half game, uh, halftime uh, shows that they've been doing have been, doing this segment where they've been doing a Mount Rushmore of the Big East, where they're all picking four names uh, to put on their Mount Rushmore for the Big East. If I gave you that chance, who, who are you wow. putting on your Mount Rushmore of the Big East? Yeah, four is hard. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I assume you, I, I, can include Dave, I, I can include Dave Gavitt, right? Absolutely, like, I don't, absolutely. Okay, so that's a no-brainer. <laughs> Dave Gavitt, yeah. first, first through fourth through 40th. I mean, there's no Big East without him, right? Yeah. Um, I would put Patrick Ewing on there simply because, again, his decision to come as a number one player in the country kind of sent a message across the country. Like you can st- you can go in this this kind of new league that nobody ever has heard of and and make things happen. And then the, the dominance and the attention that he brought to the league because of the way he played gave the league a personality and an edge. So I would put him up there. Um, boy, I have to think of two. I mean, there's like 30 other ones are just flashing <laughs> through my mind. That's the problem. Um I would probably put I would probably put Jim Calhoun on there because I think at the time when the league was sort of transitioning, right when when mm-hmm. you know Syracuse, not Syracuse so much, but UConn and I'm sorry, gosh, Georgetown and Villanova and St. John's were transitioning through coaches and stuff. UConn kind of came in and took the reins and became a great program in the in the 90s there when the league needed to have you know a team take over, and that doesn't happen without Jim Calhoun. And then the last one, I, I would gosh, I mean, to pick between John Thompson and Jim Beheim seems impossible. Um, I, I guess, um, 
I'm going to give one to Patrick. I'm going to split the baby and put Jim Beheim on there as the fourth, just because I, I don't want to have all Georgetown. But you know, <laughs> Beheim because of his staying power and what he did by shepherding that program. And you know, when he got got Pearl Washington, he made games in the Carrier Dome a possibility because otherwise it was going to be this big building that nobody wanted to go to. And that building and the way you know Syracuse fans grew in Legion and came to New York. I mean, again, and, and he's, his teams are such a part of the important fabric of the league. I'd have to put him up there, but man, I can make a case for Luke Carnesecca and Chris Mullen and Rolly Massimino and John Thompson and Roosevelt. Uh, I could go on and on for like 20 the, people. Yeah. The, the list can go on and on there. So I, I, I give you credit for being able to pick four and, and stick to those four there. So nicely done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so when you look one more question on the yes. coaches here, you, you see, Rick Pitino still coaching despite some of the ups and downs of his career. You know, Jim Calhoun was coaching at a D3 school up until about a couple weeks ago. Jim Beheim is still coaching. What do you think it says about those coaches in the league in general? Just the fact that they've been able to coach for so long and, and have done it, you know, looking back to the early days in your book here. Yeah, I mean, first, you know, look, you can't you can't diminish just the the brilliant coaches that they are. I mean, it's really what it yeah. comes down to. It Like, when you're able to go from the late 70s through 2021 and not just coach, but be relevant and successful. It speaks to your ability to adapt to the way the game has changed and your ability to just be a really great coach. I mean, it, a lot of coaches come and go, but they don't have staying power because they aren't able to roll with the punches, how things change. And those guys do. And they have, I mean, what Rick Pitino has done at Iona is only a surprise to those people who didn't pay attention to Rick Pitino throughout the you know period of his career. He's a great coach. Mm -hmm. Jim Calhoun, I went and did a story when he was just starting at St. Joseph. I mean, like it was a girl's school. He was in a cinder blocked office. I'm like, what in the world is going on? And then of course they're in the NCAA tournament because that's who Jim Calhoun is. Yeah. And you know, look at Jim Beheim. I mean, every year, even this year early, people are like, eh, are they any good? They lose to Auburn and here they are. They, you know, they go out and they beat Indiana and they go out and beat Florida state. I mean, yeah, he's a great coach. I mean, and, and that's why the league worked at its essence, they had great players at the beginning, and they had great coaches, and that's what made it work. Because you can't, you can have all kinds of bells and whistles, but if the product you put on the floor isn't any good, nobody's going to care. Uh, I'll wrap with this one. This was a, a couple lines in the book that really stood out to me, and you wrote, wrote about this in relation to this kind of second part of the Big East from 2000 to 2013, and, and you write, "Bastardized and bloated in geography and size, it still owned the identity Gavitt had constructed all those years earlier. It was gritty and tough." It's epicenter still in New York. It's personality unchanged. Looking at the Big East as it is now, despite the changes it's made, I, I think it still lives up to that. Would you, do you think that, that passage you had on, on that second wave still holds today? I do. I thought it was really interesting when the league kind of folded and reformed. They did it basically in Dave Cavett's image, if you think about it. I mean, they went back to their basketball-centric roots. They were very mom-and-pop at the start. They were very collegial and supporting one another. They went out and made a brand of basketball that works. I mean, you know, look, are some of the, you know, Creighton Marquette are a little bit more offensive oriented than maybe your traditional Big East teams back in the day were. But this is still a league where you're going to basically go out there and have a fight every time you're on the court. You're not going to have a lot of walkover teams. You're going to have a battle out there. The coaches are exemplary and really talented. And I really think it's important the way they do support one another. I think that gets lost in the shuffle sometimes that they are big East first from, from Jay right at the top to all the way at the bottom, whoever you want to put at the bottom, because they understand that collectively they are better than they are individually, which is how the original big East worked as well. 
Absolutely. Well, Dana, I really appreciate the time again. The book, The Big East, Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in College Basketball History. I love the book. Thanks for taking some time to walk, walk through it with me today. I know the listeners are going to really enjoy this and, and really enjoy the book as well. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, and, and yeah, and enjoy the holidays. Thank you. You as well. Thanks again for reaching out. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast with Jared Cutler. If you like the show and want to know more, check out the podcast on Twitter at CT Scoreboard Pod, the host at Jared Cutler, and find us on Facebook at the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast. Finally, if you enjoy what you're listening to, rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.